On May 27, 1919, then-president of the North Carolina State College of Agriculture and Engineering, Wallace Carl Riddick, submitted his annual report to the college's board of trustees. The prior year had been a challenge for State College, with the United States fighting in World War I. Students were being trained for the military at the Student Army Training Corps, which had opened at NC State in September of 1918. Riddick summed up the war effort's effect on the university by offering, in his words, that we were practically commandeered by the government for war purposes. And in October of 1918, State College's administration found itself battling an enemy of its own here in Raleigh. The flu pandemic of 1918 came to campus and almost half of the 1,000 students enrolled at State College got sick. In the report to trustees, Riddick offered this portrait of campus life in the midst of the Spanish flu. There were about 450 cases and 13 of them proved fatal. The infirmary was filled in a few hours and the overflow was taken to the YMCA. In a day or two, every foot of available floor space, upstairs and down, was occupied by cots with sick boys, and 12 patients had been sent to Rex Hospital. As many as 300 were sick at one time, and it is impossible to give details in regards to these cases. There were more deaths at the college in two weeks than had previously occurred since its establishment. The virus left its mark at State College and beyond that fall causing cancellations of football games and halting county fairs around the state, while at the same time galvanizing extension efforts at State College to help the sick and protect against such a quick spread of a virus in the future. In the current issue of NC State Magazine, we chronicle the story of when State got sick and why Riddick, in his annual report called 1918, the busiest, most strenuous, and in many respects the most trying year in the history of the college. But we weren't the only ones who thought it was important enough of an event to revisit a hundred years later. History 596, a graduate course in the Public History Department, focused its efforts in researching the 1918 flu at NC State and built and unveiled in early 2018 a virtual exhibit called Soldiering On, the 1918-1919 Influenza Pandemic at NC State College. It's absolutely wonderful in its content. I'm Chris Saunders, Associate Editor of NC State Magazine, and today on Hear the How, we talk to Claire Dulaney, who was the lead curator on that project. She talks about historical sources, how we interchangeably frame sickness and war, and brilliant Twitter avatars. Episode 9, In Sickness and in Stealth. It's not that the flu of 1918 didn't happen. It's just that for the last 100 years, it has been largely forgotten in history books. Its occurrence is very real, but largely up until an awareness centered around the 100-year anniversary of the event, it's not been one that a great number of historians looked at. But that was something that appealed to Delaney when she and her public history colleagues set out on their research. When I first interviewed her for the story in the magazine, she called the flu of 1918 an overlooked history. It's another piece of, of the story that isn't often told, so it's exciting. Everybody knows the story of World War I. Everyone knows, you know, the big battles and how afterwards people were sort of disenchanted with the idea of the military and European intervention, so it became a very isolationist time for America. But, but the flu epidemic and, and flu pandemic um, is sort of the piece that's not told. It's not hard to imagine Delaney finding the flu of 1918 or any historical event exciting. She was a history major at Drew University in Madison, New Jersey, and studied European and British history during World War II. But when she came to NC State as a grad student and began working with Tammy Gordon, who teaches History 596, she turned her attention to World War I and the intervening years between it and World War II. 
She examined the rise of home economics and how women during that time period began working in textile, synthetics, and chemical engineering. Her appreciation for that time is even apparent when she discusses her musical tastes. I love the music from that time period, so it was really easy to fall in love with the historical study of it. I mean, if Glenn mm-hmm. Miller or Etta James is singing <laughs> or playing it, I like it. And when she talks about her Twitter avatar. It's a gas mask that bleeds into a nurse's face. Delaney says Gordon actually came up with it as an idea for the cover for the digital exhibit. It didn't make the cut, by the way. She thought it was too horrifying, and I thought it was just beautiful in its horrifyingness, so I made it my Twitter, and uh, yeah, I'm not getting rid of it. It's actually that haunting and arresting image that serves as a metaphor for one of Delaney's favorite discoveries from the class's research. It's what she calls the biomilitaristic language that grew out of a flu pandemic stacked on top of global war. And you still hear it today when someone talks about being sick. They're fighting, they lost their battle, that's how we term um, sickness now, especially more serious diseases. And vice versa. From one of the pieces that we did work with, uh, the author said something like, um, illness framed war and war fed illness. I mean, we talk about... We talk about war and illness both as like crusades. We talk about war as scourge and like things that need to be destroyed and decimated and a virus. I think one of the reasons that they were so closely linked is because you could make a home front campaign about staying healthy and have implications for the people fighting across the seas. Um, It's not as like catchy as keep calm and carry on, but don't cough and don't spit was huge. You saw it plastered all over the posters. Things like staying healthy at home helps those away at war. Those sorts of slogans that put onus on the individual to stay healthy in order to keep soldiers healthy. It was, you know, public health trying to keep people safe. It was the government trying to keep morale up, but it is, um, it was just a very sort of beautiful marriage of being able to say you staying healthy and you making that war effort at home is what is keeping our boys safe and able to fight in, in Europe. Something else that was apparent in public messaging from 1918 were depictions of women that captured kind of a same old new role, so to speak. Delaney finds them interesting to examine when she thinks about the traditional concepts being represented with more empowering imagery. If you look at like the Red Cross posters and their advertisements, it's always the women saying, will you come and join? Will you come and protect and nurture and comfort? It's, it's the women in this powerful role. I'm thinking of two in particular. There's this um, a seated woman, but she's very like strong and she's not, you know, she's not fragile. She's holding like a miniature man on a stretcher. And it's a little weird because he's obviously like an adult, but he's small. And she's just cradling him like an infant. And then there's another one where... It's a soldier obviously devastated that they just, like, you know, lost a ton of men in an, in an offensive, and he looks so weak. And she's standing over him, you know, comforting him and holding a baby. So it's like she is very much the dominant figure in the scene. So it's, it's being advertised as just an extension of what you would normally do. This is your role. You're a woman. You are the comforter, you are the nurturer, you are the provider of, you know, those sort of domestic things, but it's in a space of very masculine and, you know, they are the power. Those advertisements were appearing in a world in which doctors were mostly men. And being a doctor wasn't just a job, it was a profession. Those guys were educated, they were respected. They were seen as having resolute answers based in science. But here's the thing, In 1918, the flu pandemic consisted of a brutally virulent strain. 
It wasn't easy to control and figure out, with so many people and younger people getting sick and dying from secondary infections like pneumonia. As a result, Delaney says, the doctors and science were seen as failing. The role of nurses becomes super important because they are the nurturers, the comforters, all those roles that you expect women in this time period to project are becoming so important because if people are dying, the doctor can't help you. It's the nurse that comforts you and nurtures you and makes your passing easier. Um, so they sort of became central. And in a couple of pieces of the literature that we read for this project, you do see a very different reaction between the doctors who felt like they had failed and nurses who felt like they had sort of come into their own. They, they had found their niche in being invaluable. Advertisements from the period and the president's report were just a few of the many sources Delaney and her team used to build their exhibit, and I used in reporting the article. There was the 1918 yearbook, which lists the name of the 13 students who died on campus. Just a plain white page with a list of names and hometowns. Nothing more. There are issues of alumni news relaying the trials and tribulations of the football team, whose roster was diminished and season was trimmed to only four games. There were extension reports, which shows the strong effort by home agents to open soup kitchens and hold demonstrations featuring recipes and remedies. Those same reports also show how home extension efforts were segregated at the time and tried to get assistance to African Americans around the state who were already at a deficit created by racism and the extreme poverty and health care disparity it led to. The flu of 1918 only underscored that. I believe it was St. Agnes Hospital in Raleigh that was the only African American hospital um, in the area. And so different quality of health care, unfortunately. And... Um, different statistics of mortality because of lower health care. Delaney's favorite source? The course catalogs that help trace the changing consciousness about disease before and after the pandemic hit. I just think the catalogs are so interesting because, again, it's not a source that um, people sort of new to primary resource or even more seasoned researchers, I think, would initially gravitate towards. Um, course catalogs seem pretty... Uh, benign when it comes to like really rich historical interpretation, but they do tell you a lot about um, what a society or sort of the larger cultural experience considers important. Um, and so having things like immunology, I don't I don't know the exact names of the classes, but like things like vaccines and dealing with sort of that that health aspect being so promoted in the course catalogs, I think is just is a really tangible reaction to something that affected state's campus and other campuses that, again, just gets overlooked. Like, who thinks of a course catalog? You just you look at it for one semester, and then you can get rid of it. But what is offered and what is being taught to students and sort of the next generation of leaders is really important. Those things are a snapshot of who we are, or who we were, when we were, something else at some other point in time. I guess everything we do captures something about the time, whether it's 1918 or 2018. That's what I'm left thinking about at the end of my conversation with Delaney. Specifically, she ends by discussing how warnings about sickness are the same as they were 100 years ago. It's just different how we put them out there. I was going over some other stuff and like looking at the way that the neurovirus last year was handled and like swine flu and bird flu and Zika virus. It's always don't panic stay calm, you know, don't go out if you think you're sick. We don't put posters up anymore, but it's because we have Instagram now. We don't need to. Um, but, yeah, it just, the no, nothing's changed in the way that we talk about illness. 
Thank you for listening to Hear the Howl today, and thanks for listening to us all of 2018 for that matter. This episode is the final episode of Season 1 of the podcast. Our producer, Morgan Holcomb, was healthy enough all last year to put together all nine episodes. I thank her for that. And I thank Sylvia Adcock, who is managing editor for the magazine, for taking time to read the stories and help craft them. We all will be taking a little break to put together Season 2's lineup and get to work on those episodes. We feel good about what we did in the past season, and we hope you liked them. But in Season 2, whose episodes we'll start releasing in a couple of months, we are aiming for the moon. Literally. I would also like to thank Dr. Timmy Gordon, a professor in NC State's Public History Department, for recommending I talk to Claire Delaney. I would also like to thank Claire for her time and talking to me about the project. She's now a grad student at UNC and was kind enough to come to Centennial Campus to help out with this episode. She and her colleagues worked on, in the fall of 2017, the History 596 virtual exhibit. Remember, it's called Soldiering On, the 1918-1919 Influenza Pandemic at NC State College. I invite all of you to visit go.ncsu.edu backslash ncstateflu to see it online. There are tons of great pictures along with some wonderful information in the exhibit. I can't recommend it enough. Looking for a good New Year's Eve resolution? How about becoming a member of a club and joining your NC State pals for one big howl in 2019? To get stories like the one on the flu pandemic of 1918 and how it affected NC State and other stories we put out in the magazine four times a year, join the NC State Alumni Association. Our fall issue is still out, but our winter issue should be hitting mailboxes in early February. You'll be able to tell when you see the cover that Senior Associate Editor Bill Kruger dug up a very important story for you. We apologize. Etta James did not make the podcast today, nor did Glenn Miller, but we did find... (coughs) Listen out for Season 2 of Hear the Howl.